You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome, good evening, and thank you for joining us this evening for this uh, discussion. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Woiwurrung, uh, Wintry Woiwurrung and Bunurong, Bunburong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. So this evening we're going to talk about housing, multi-residential housing in particular, and uh, future homes to be specific. Um, we have seven people joining us this evening. A quick word on each of them. We have St- um, Stefan Pruss, who's the Deputy Government Architect at the Office of the Victorian Government Architect. We have Nick Mann, who's an Executive Director at the Department of Transport and Planning. We also have Sarah Foster, who's an ARC Fellow at the Healthy Living Cities Group at RMIT. We then have four architects who each represent one of the four teams who delivered the four uh, exemplar designs for future homes, including Lisa Garner from Leanne. We have Andreas Lopez from Agency for Designing Strategy. We have Felipe Ayala from Spiral Architects Labs and Peter McGregor from McGregor uh, Westlake Architects. So these are our speakers uh, this evening for a discussion on housing. So um, a few years ago, um, uh, the Premier uh, had an idea that Many, many decades ago, the state government and its designers helped um, bring affordable housing to Victoria once before in the form of family homes. And today, many, many decades later, some of those homes are amongst the most precious um, buildings that we have. And we look back very fondly that they're very good quality designs. And the, and the simple thought was, one might even say a thought bubble was, let's try and do the same again for multi-residential housing, apartment design. What can the state government do in collaboration with industry to deliver better housing? So what was born was Future Homes. Uh, at the time, OVGA with DELP, uh, then transformed into the Department of, of Transport and Planning this year. And uh, I had a small role to help with the competition where we um, had a lot of great designs come in from around the architecture community. Four designs were selected and those four design teams went on to develop their designs into exemplar designs. And the, the simple and rather amazing idea of this is that we have a set of designs complete now that can be taken off the shelf and adapted as a part of a, a, a new planning policy that's being uh, a pilot of which is being rolled out. And we'll hear about more of that later. So in terms of this evening, I think we have two parts to the evening. We start with a kind of a high level sort of macro. Let's talk about housing in a general sense and a broad sense and some of the challenges we have in housing. And then we move into a more detailed conversation on how design can actually have an impact and what are the design features that can make for more livable housing. If there's there's one thing I'd like, well, I suppose there's three things I'd like you to take away from this evening. Hopefully we can get there. Number one, I'd like you to all understand a little bit more about why what we're doing currently is not good enough. Yep, the, the apartments that we're designing across the country and in Victoria, uh, a lot of them are not good enough. Uh, they are, we are storing up problems for future generations and we need to be able to design our apartments better. Secondly, those of you who are designers, I hope you'll, hopefully you'll go away with some ideas around design, specific design ideas, takeaways you might say, that you can take into your own design work. And thirdly, if there's anyone involved here today in, involved in the development industry or in developing um, housing, 
um, I'd like you to take a look at Future Homes and to maybe look at how it can help you deliver your next, next project. So those are, those are three things we'd like to get out of this evening. Starting, I guess, with the macro. Nick, if I could start with you <clears throat> and talk about rings, different rings in the city, the inner, middle, and outer. We know that uh, we have made great headway, for better or for worse, in uh, building capacity in our housing in the, in, the, uh, in the inner city and the outer city. We have not done so well in the middle suburbs. Why does that matter? Thanks a lot, Andrew, um, and pleasure to be here today. Uh, the, one of the genesis of this idea was to address a problem that cities all around the world are trying to grapple with, and that is how do you accommodate significant growth in a sustainable way? Melbourne needs to accommodate one million additional homes in established areas between now and 2050. The, um, to do that, we need to create improved density that sits within the middle suburbs and the middle rings of Melbourne. We need to provide a different housing typology that is attractive to future communities. We need to um, ensure that that, that housing typology sits really well within established areas of the city and not just within core areas that are identified now for growth-like activity centres and precincts, but in the neighbourhoods of the middle rings of Melbourne. And um, in order to do that, there's not that there is not the product of housing in the market at the moment that does that. Uh, you were seeing on the front page of The Age today the discussion around how difficult it is, how the, the preferences of the community for having a standalone dwelling out in the edge of Melbourne and the changes and the interventions that government needs to make, as suggested by Infrastructure Victoria, to shift that preference. One of those changes is to give a great product, to give a well-designed product that um, Future Homes seeks to do, and it's sought to do, state, the state government has stepped in to try and lead that in the absence of that being delivered organically through the development sector and is seeking to partner with the, with the industry in order to deliver that product. And it's all about really creating a Melbourne that, you know, is a sustainable Melbourne that gives future communities access to the livable neighbourhoods that sit within the middle suburbs of Melbourne and creates quality living that, you know, the future communities need. So that's what this competition's about. So I, I saw that report that came out today and it almost felt like a bit of a Dorothy Dixer for this evening because it's, it's like, uh, what do we do about housing? How do we solve this? And here we have a situation of several years of work with dozens of people who've been working on this very, this very challenge. Stefan, if I could throw to you, um, the, uh, one of the questions here is, is around diversity, isn't it? That, that there was a time when it was felt that all we needed was family homes because most people lived in family homes. And then we started backfilling student apartments and small apartments in the city because there was a kind of meanwhile market for people who do that for a few years. But in the middle of all this, there's uh, lots of dynamic changes happening in our demographies and that maybe the kind of opportunity in the middle suburbs actually is where that opportunity for diversity and, dare I say it, people's choices can have a, a kind of better reign. Would you say that's the case? Absolutely. Can you hear me? Yeah. That, I was told I have to eat this microphone, obviously, that's the case. Um, yes, that, that's absolutely the case. There's, there's plenty of research showing that the households that we traditionally have been thinking of when designing cities are actually in the minority 
um, these days. So the classic, you know, family with two kids and so on. That's actually the minority. We need um, accommodation for many more diverse groups, including maybe shared households, um, you know, aging in place, um, blended families, um, single parent households and so on. Um, and at the same time, diversity is one of the factors that actually increases the vibrancy of an area as well. Um, so the Future Homes competition was very keen on uh, providing a product that actually provides that diversity. And as probably our colleagues, um, the design architects, will tell you, the, the Future Homes designs are actually um, so flexible that the same external envelope, if you like, could accommodate very different types of apartment mixes. We've seen that with the Homes Victoria, a project that they're looking at for predominantly one and two bedroom apartments. We also looked at family-friendly um, apartment standards uh, that were developed um, to make sure that these could be actual alternatives to um, the house in the greenfield. And talking of the Infrastructure Victoria um, report today, which I'll encourage you all to read, um, it states basically that one in five households would choose, say, a three-bedroom apartment in an established suburb over a greenfield house without access to, um, to services. So, I mean, I found it very interesting in a workshop recently talking to people in Shepparton and they were talking about the housing need and it was a good example there where everyone was talking about rebuilding homes, houses rather, um, and in fact actually they discovered that there's a very large increasing number of people who are not looking for single family homes, they're looking for apartments, even in, in Shepparton. Um, Nick, back actually, to you. Sorry, uh, especially sorry. in Shepparton. Especially, um, yeah. No, I'll make that point because we, always, we talked to the um, committee for Greater Shepparton and unlike some of the cohorts we are looking at, which is more on the affordable housing side, because people have got money, they have somewhat choice in Melbourne. In Shepparton, um, there are not enough apartments for executives to come to Shepparton to work. So it's starting to hurt the core business of the economy there. So some of the pressures are actually greater in some of the regional towns than in Melbourne. Uh, Nick, obviously, um, kind of representing planning, um, and we are, we're kind of looking to planning to some extent to help the, be part of the solution. Other states have all kind of um, had different planning policies in place. Have, have we in Victoria learned from some of the kind of like successes and maybe not less, less successful outcomes of planning in, in other states? Are, are there ways we can kind of look at the experience of the last um, 10, 15 years in other states uh, and kind of learn from that? Uh, there, there, absolutely there are. So um, <clears throat> we can look to Sydney and we can see that we, we think that we have a housing affordability crisis in Melbourne, but you look at Sydney and you see the affordability differences that, that how um, more expensive houses are in Sydney and um, the challenge that Sydney's got in, in dealing with that. Obviously, Sydney's um, got slightly different spatial framework to Melbourne. Uh, so we can look at places like Western Australia that have just recently introduced a, a medium density housing code and how that we can learn from other planning systems to fast track and not get in the way of quality product and good designer and start to enable those things. We need to also look globally though and look at how um, other cities around the world, we're looking at um, uh, Berlin, London, how they are able to drive density and quality design and what the planning system does in um, to enable that. So yes, absolutely, we're trying to learn from other cities. Sarah, if I could put pull you in. Um, of, you've been working on quite a bit of research in this area um, and particularly looking at the kind of the, 
the relationship between planning changes and planning regulation of, of uh, residential design and their outcomes to some extent. Um, when I said earlier that we're not doing good enough, I think maybe some of your research kind of substantiates that. Could you just talk us through a little bit the research you've been, you've been working on? Okay. Can you hear? Is this okay? Um, so hopefully I won't drone on for too long. Wind me up if I do. Um, what we did, um, we called it the High Life Study, and we were, we were really interested in the interplay between apartment design settings, so the policies that were there, what was implemented on the ground, and then the experience of people living in those buildings. So we focused on three cities, Perth, Melbourne and Sydney. Sydney because they'd had SEP65 in place for many years and that was reported to have improved the design outcomes for apartments. Um, and Perth and Melbourne because they'd had really weak guidance in place for apartments. So we wanted to have sort of diversity in the pool of apartments that we looked at. So basically we sampled apartment buildings from the three cities. We ended up with 114 apartment complexes across the three cities, slightly more in Perth, slightly fewer in Sydney. Um, they were spread out from the CBD, so they weren't in the city centre necessarily. They could be within different distances. Some could be within like 20 kilometres of the city centre and they, were, they had diversity in terms of the um, area level disadvantage because we wanted to have... We wanted to look at that question of whether good design was something that was available to everyone. It wasn't just a commodity that was available to the wealthy in the well-located suburbs. Um, so once we had our sample of buildings, um, we had to get the development applications to get the plans and elevations so that we could measure what was actually being built. And we, uh, you know, so, some things changed. We had a validation process to kind of check that what was actually in the development application was quite reflective of what was actually in the final building. So anyway, so we measured about, I'm going to say, 96 different minimum requirements based on the policies that existed in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. And I should say that our buildings were actually, they were built, they were quite contemporary apartments, so they were built under the reign of SEP 65, but they predated the new policies that had come into place in um, the design policies that come in in Victoria and in Western Australia, which are quite recent. Um, so they were 2006 to 2016, three or more storeys and at least 40 units. And then we surveyed, so we measured the, the life out of these apartments for what we could, um, and then we also surveyed people in the apartments. So we had about 1,300 participants across the three cities. And then we had sort of three main objectives in the study. So one was to just look at, okay, well, what was, what was in the policy and what was implemented on the ground, you know? So sort of as a, as a proxy for apartment quality, were they meeting the minimum standards that were in the policies? Um, we wanted to look at this question of whether disadvantaged neighbourhoods had poorer quality buildings built. And then we also wanted to look at the relationship between meeting minimum standards and the occupant experience and the health and well-being of people in those buildings. So, in a nutshell... This is, this is the bit I'm most interested in. Okay. The relationship Sorry. between... I felt like I had to explain. <laughs> no, no, like, no, no that's good. It's good to have the background. Yeah, but what's really exciting <laughs> is the connection between that and that analytic work you've done, okay. measuring, going through each of those design decisions, and then outcomes in the form of health and mental okay. health outcomes. Yeah. So... Like, just quickly before we get to that, um, <laughs> we, we found that um, in Sydney, where they had a comprehensive policy in place, they were implementing about, on average, 60% of the requirements that we measured. 
versus in Victoria where there was really weak guidance, only 40% of what we measured was being implemented in the buildings. So you could see there was already an impact of having quite an aspirational design policy on what was being built on the ground. And then when we looked at meeting those minimum requirements in individual apartments, people who lived in apartments that met more of the requirements had more positive perceptions of their apartment. So if, for instance, it met more of the space and layout requirements in the policies, people were more likely to perceive that they had a, a spacious and functional apartment. Yeah. So there was a correlation between what was being implemented and how people perceive their apartment and its livability. And those things in turn had an impact on housing satisfaction and also the well-being of people in those apartments. Um, so we, we kind of looked at just these minimum standards and, and collapsed them by themes. But we did some more analysis where we did this, it's called a cluster analysis. And basically you're grouping the apartments into kind of data-driven groupings. So Based on what was implemented in the apartments, we had a high policy performance cluster of buildings and we had a group of buildings that were performing comparatively poorly against these requirements. And so in the high performing cluster, you had more dual aspect apartments that were meeting more of the sunlight and daylight requirements. They were more spacious. They had better communal areas, better circulation spaces. And so, so they were ticking a lot of boxes across all the requirements. The poorly performing buildings, they tended to be bigger in scale and they were more single aspect apartments and they poured, you know, they were just comparatively poorer. And so we found that people living in the high performing buildings had significantly higher mental well-being than those in the poorly performing buildings. Is this, in a way, a kind of a, a, an argument for... We, we're always dealing with sticks and carrots, uh, but maybe the stick is also good here, which is to say, here is the, here's what we're aiming for and you must achieve these things, and if we can get there, then there's actually significant advantage to the people who live in those places. I think... I mean, I think so. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's both, isn't there? Like, you want to aspire to something. Like, I know... Like, even when we say, like, okay, with SEP 65... All, all of SEP 65 is not being implemented, but at least having an aspirational policy that sets the tone for what you want as a society is perhaps important. Mm -hmm. I mean, then you need kind of the checks in place and the screening processes and the approval processes to try and, you know, get as much of that on the ground as possible. Yeah. Um, can I, can I ask you, um, um, we've, we've got a good context of the research now. Okay, sorry, um, maybe, ask, maybe too much. I'm going to ask sorry. you the difficult question here. Oh, no. I, yeah, if you were to um, think of the top three, four things that you could see most materially impacted the quality of life of people. You mentioned a few okay. circulation. Yeah, yeah. Can, can, can you just, you know, what are, what are the top things, the top takeaways? Okay, so I guess... I guess it was like having, I think communal areas was actually one thing that we found was really important. Um, not all the buildings had a an outdoor communal area. So, and particularly if you compared the buildings in the cities, um, in Victoria, in Melbourne, only 70% of the buildings had a communal outdoor area, whereas in Sydney it was something like 96% had that. We found that people tended to use those areas if they were of better quality. Mm. And if they used the areas, they were more likely to know their neighbours and they um, had lower odds of loneliness. And they also, if they perceived they had good quality of their communal areas, 
they, it was associated with better mental well-being. So I would say communal areas, and this is not necessarily in any order, it's basically as they've You're not being cited here, it's okay. <laughs> Kill the recording. Um, <laughs> I think also space and layout, we know that that was an important thing when people picked what, what, what picked their apartment, you know, yeah. and I think that ties to one of the designs that will be flagged later, you know, like bringing those idea of sort of suburban spaces but into a high-density living environment. So we knew that, yeah, and where they perceived they had better design layout of their apartment, that was associated with well-being, both kind of subjectively and objectively. So that was really important. Um, what else? That's good enough I for mean, now. You can I always... think it's some... Sorry, and I just... I, th I think sometimes, you know, you could say it's one or two things, but really it's kind of like the, the holistic delivery of good design. Like, I think it's hard to say one or two things is really key. There probably are some, some things you want to deliver on, but in terms of our... When we looked at the high-performing buildings, they really tick the boxes across a whole range of kind of issues. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's hard to pull out one or two and just say, well, that's the one thing you should just focus on. Yeah. I think you need to kind of deliver across the board. Um, nevertheless, communal spaces particularly... But I, but I did, but yeah, I, but okay. I pulled pull that out. I'm going to go to some of our architects now because I know that with all four of their designs, um, one of the things that distinguished them from what is commonly found in the market, it was a, a, an absolute obsession with trying to create open space and shared space that had a quality that wasn't a residual space left over from when you planned out the apartments. I don't know, who, who would like to pick up on, on, on for, the, for, for the work? You, Lisa, with your... With, with your um, uh, work you did with Andre, um, the, one of the qualities was really quite excellent about it was the address to the street. A lot of, a lot of apartments just land to the ground with a very kind of aggressive posture, not very civic, and one of the things that Future Homes was trying to do was to create a, a good neighbourly kind of connection to the street. Could you talk about your site strategy in relation to connecting to the street? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it was a big aspiration for us. We took a lot of inspiration from um, the quality of the suburbs, which is that sort of street-facing front garden, which offers a lot of possibility for, um, you know, individualisation, um, and it does create a possibility to meet your neighbours. Um, and so that was a big driver in our design. It was one of the key drivers um, to have ground floor gardens that were private gardens um, given to these apartments that were more of a townhouse-style product. Mm. Yeah. And did you manage to hold on to that? Because I know that with the transition from winning the competition to then getting these exemplar designs, there was a, there was a, there was a, you know, we had to really kind of like sharpen the pencil to get them to work. You, you managed to hold on to that quality. Yeah, we definitely had to squeeze a lot in, um, but we did hold on to that, and that's still. Um, yeah. Yeah, an important aspect of the design. I think Felipe also your, your the way you approached your your team approached it. There was a similar kind of investment around the uh, what was communal and how people got to know each other, and with that, the sense that if you know your community, you're more likely not just to pass through, but actually put down roots somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. We we also pushed the the communal the main communal space to the front for for that reason, but. At the same time, around the development, there are pocket gardens or elevated spaces where you can meet. So we, we understood the landscape more as a journey, like how you get through it and when you get through it, what is happening. And in that journey, you, you might have the chance to meet people, not, not only when you get there, but when you're trying to get there. Mm. So to have um, different um, quality of landscape 
around the perimeter of the building. It's, uh, it's quite important because, um, as you mentioned, until we measure these things, we don't know what it works. So really, we are, we are still experimenting because for some people, uh, a veggie garden is very interesting. For other people, it's, it's not interesting at all. They don't want to go there. Yeah. So you just, you just need to have those different yeah, yeah, yeah. bodies. Um, Andre, um, uh, you, your team worked very hard to, let's say, kind of break down the massing that you typically get in uh, medium density housing. And I, know, I think that's one of the key things that people in, in conventional residential streets are worried about, that they're going to you know, be hit by a, a massive volume of, of apartments. Can you talk a little bit around your kind of massing strategy in, in that respect? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I must say first, my other colleagues are not here. We did the concept between my firm and Include Design. Two lovely people from Sydney, they're not here, I'm representing them. So, um, our design was basically, actually, comes from a sh the shared space. So we were thinking, how can we create, we, we all talk about shared space, but for us, how can we create a building form that actually celebrates shared space and can help communities to form? You know, what, what does it mean? So we started with, with the actual square in the middle, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with a diagram that Yang Hale has, which is first life, then the space, then the buildings. That's actually how we created it. And for us, the shared space is got two characters. There is the more private communal open space and then that piazza opens into the neighborhood as an open space. And this vertical circulation is actually in between the two, the, the more private and also the, the, com the actual neighborhood. So, so there is a more private area and also the more public because for us it was very important how the building also creates a connection to the outer neighborhood and, and how people uses this space and, and how this vertical circulation is part of that activity. And every day when you're coming out of your apartment, you go through the, through the corridor and you see the communal space that is more private and you also see the street. So there is this constant connection with inside and outside. So for us, that, that's how we did it actually. And this created a mass that wasn't, we, we didn't want something too dominant, so we wanted to break out this into different buildings around a courtyard. Mm -hmm. yes. Thanks. Um, Peter, you, you've um, been practicing in Sydney for some time, uh, and I've, you might say at the kind of cool face of delivering uh, multi-residential developments, um, you're obviously very familiar with SEP 65, um, and, and Sarah talked about that kind of translation of the plan, planning policy into actual designed outcomes. I think sometimes, maybe in Melbourne or maybe just within uh, within the Arctic community, there's a there's a reticence to um, uh, to uh, lean too heavily on metrics and on numbers and on kind of uh, 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 let's say inflexible kind of uh, measurements. Nevertheless, I think from your experience, there's something to be said about actually knowing where you stand in relation to, you know, what, CIP, what 60, CEP 65 requires. Have you got any thoughts about, is, has, is, has, that, has that got the right measure of what should be delivered? Is it too, is it too analytic? Should it be loosened up? Um, I think what you were saying before was that I'm old. 
as a kind of lapsed Catholic, I'd say freedom in discipline. <laughs> okay. With SEP 65. Um, so, look, there are lots of metrics in SEP 65. Um, I think it's um, generally a good thing. Uh, I think it's generally been a good thing. And it's very pleasing to hear um, the data that uh, we just heard about, uh, that there is, um, you know, after 15 years of following all these metrics, there is a little bit of an improvement in people's wellbeing and satisfaction. Uh, in apartments in Sydney. Um, uh, someone else earlier said, we were talking about it earlier, and she said that um, the metrics are also there because you want to bring the bottom up. Um, and, and I think that's important. Um, I, I would say, um, personally, I think SEP65 can go... Uh, like, I think, think we have 60% cross-ventilation of apartments, 70% must get two hours of sunlight in winter, 15%, only 15% cannot get any sunlight in winter. Um, th there's a lot of metrics and sometimes um, I think it's a shame that um, I would say the City of Sydney, for one, I'll name them, is um, they can be too pedantic, I think, where you're talking about sunlight when you should be talking about the street. And I think sometimes in where the ADG might fall down is um, it's very good with an object building like the buildings we've been working on, but I don't think it's as good for fabric when you've got a street, say you've got a street facing south. Well, I think it's more important to address the street than cut the building up to get north light for two hours into the apartments. One of the factors of this uh, of these exemplars is that they're designed to be not just a single use, but used in multiple occasions and on multiple orientations. Was was orientation given that so much of what architects do, they think about where the sun rises, where it sets, etc. Was that a particularly difficult challenge to 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 kind of rise to that idea that your plan could be pointed that way, or that way, or that way? Was that a particularly difficult challenge? Yeah, I think it was it was definitely a difficult challenge, but it it tested the adaptability of our designs. Like, I guess the intent was for them to be flexible models that could be adapted to suit different sites throughout the suburb. So, in doing that exercise of having to make the design work on a north-south site and an east-west site, and even a basement scheme, really made us go to another level of rigor and really nutting it out. Um, and there was a huge effort in prioritising northern aspect to. Um, you know, really, Melbourne is a, a cool climate to really get all the hours of sun throughout the day um, into the depths of living rooms. So it was a, it was a really big driver. Yep. What one of the, um, I guess, one of the sub themes of events in at, at M Pavilion uh, this year is the unseen design. And in some ways, I think of I've got a whole list of uh, questions in relation to sustainability, and, and it's probably one of the more unseen elements of design. Insofar as the things that make things sustainable are not very easy to capture in in photography, and given that housing is so sold by the image and by the photograph, it seems to be a particular challenge. Stefan, um, with future homes, um, uh, what were some of the key um, sustainability aspirations that were like? front and centre that we had to, no matter what else, we had to achieve that was not being achieved otherwise in conventional outcomes? Yeah. Uh, we did ask, ask ourselves the question um, very consciously at the beginning, where do we pitch it? You know, we had BADS, you know, a very interesting acronym, and in hindsight we could have called Future Homes Goods. 
in the sense that, you know, um, BANS is very much about lifting the bottom up, you know, actually not in response to Sarah's study, but certainly um, validating this study. Um, whereas we wanted to, to pitch it at a level where it's good practice, it's not bleeding edge, it's not unviable. So we actually surveyed people in the know, people who were delivering, you know, eight, nine star homes and so on. We landed on, on a mix which we think still holds up and actually was quite good in, in light of the changes to the National Construction Code. But most importantly, with regard to Sarah's factors of what influences well-being and SEP 65, keeping in mind that we're talking about three stories, general residential zone, not 20-story buildings, that all apartments have sunlight in winter, all apartments have dual aspect, all apartments have natural ventilation. So it goes significantly beyond either of those metrics. Um, and that informed very different types of designs, that much more articulated designs, and then the communal space aspect to it. So they're actually quite different products. And the idea of that was, if we want an alternative to a house, a freestanding house or a townhouse, we need to provide some of the qualities, or even better qualities, in terms of community especially, than that. And then we, we pitched the, the metrics at above what would be commonly regarded as good. So it's seven and a half star minimum nat hers, minimum six and a half per, per apartment. Um, you know, as the, all the other aspects that I mentioned, 35% uh, garden area. Um, and, and so on and so forth, very much geared towards healthy homes. And it's nice, we didn't even know about Sarah's study at the time, nice to see that pretty much everything she says is in future homes now. Validated by research. Validated by research. All we need now is lots of them built, and then Sarah can do another study to we, see we do how the, well We do the performed. big pitch at the end, Stefan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, Nick, um, I wonder, could you uh, just... Um, uh, there's a pilot program currently underway. I wonder, could you just uh, talk a little bit about that pilot project and what the aspirations are there? Um, sure, and the concept of unseen design is a good segue because what we don't want is all this great thinking into new housing and new types of, you know, um, new product for Melbourne just to, be, just to remain as blueprints and to remain as ideas. We want these built, we want them rolled out, we want them in, taken up by industry and in 10 years' time, we want to hold an event like this that says, oh, yeah, the thousandth future home has just been built for Melbourne. And we want, um, you know, and build from there. So what um, we're doing to, as, as a means to make this uh, product attractive to the development sector is to run a pilot project with Maribyrnong City Council for two years where we've set up a planning pathway that essentially enables the planning process to be completed in four months as opposed to a 12 to 18 month process. It gives a much greater certainty of the planning outcome for developers because it excludes um, appeal rights. So there's no VCAT, there's um, a bespoke referral process that's been designed for the future homes to give certainty to developers to take this product up. We've assessed 7,000 sites in the city of Maribyrnong to identify where these um, lot, where the future homes product could be um, applied within the spatial um, parameters of near activity centres, near train stations, on main roads. So um, we're very proud proud of the fact that there is a, a pilot council that we're working with in one of you know a, a reasonably inner suburb area of 
Melbourne that has got quite large lots in some areas that would lend themselves to this product. Um, we're very happy that we are working with Homes Victoria to get one of the um, buildings away in a, in, through the big housing build as an exemplar because we just feel like once there's something that people can see, that'll be the start of the take-up the take of this product. And then when it's um, seen to be an attractive proposition to people who are living out in the suburbs, like the articles in The Age said, spoke about today, and it, this is a viable product and an affordable product to live close to services in quality housing, that future homes will take off and will go beyond ideas and good designs on paper and blueprints and not be unseen, but be realised as a key part of providing a, creating a sustainable Melbourne. Thank you. Um, one of the uh, things that a lot of people are struggling with right now, um, post-COVID and, and with all sorts of challenges around the world, is materials and material supplies and how we build buildings. And there was a moment uh, at the uh, kind of launch or at the outcomes of future homes where that might even have been an opportunity insofar as that conventional construction was maybe a bit more difficult than it was otherwise. Was material and material construction a part of your thinking here in terms of what might be an innovative way to approach materiality, maybe in relation to uh, um, serialization or, 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 or uh, bulk manufacturing or, or, or other materials that you might use? Peter, you... you um, well, hello. Uh, I'll just say quickly, um, I, it definitely was. We, we did... Uh, research into uh, the carbon footprint of materials. This scale of three stories is a fantastic scale to look at that. Um, you know, we, we ha had very tangible data about the reduction. Like, we could build this built building in lightweight materials. Um, we only needed concrete for the ground floor slab over the basement. Uh, it was a great opportunity to explore that, and we found very... Um, clear data that said we could do it. And then I guess the other thing too is um, the claddings of the buildings was, is also very important, how, they, how they're seen on the street and how they age. And so there's that thing about no scaffolding finishes. All finishes are, are factory finishes and, and it, it's, you know, tapping into that prefabrication finish. No scaffolding finishes as in having to erect a scaffolding to finish the building. Uh, well, sometimes you have to erect it to build the building, but you don't want to be painting the building or rendering the building. You don't want to come back to have to put scaffold up to fix the building. Yeah, yeah. So you're using materials that uh, will stand on their own. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it feels like we've all been sort of, those who are older as me, been waiting for modularity to kind of like hit the shelves um, for about half a century. And I know that both um, Andre and, and Felipe, you, in, to some extent, your designs were, were playing with that idea. Obviously, there was a decision around this, try, like trying to keep this as lean as possible and as um, market friendly as possible, which meant that was challenging. But do you think we are at a time when, if we're talking about scalable, scaling houses, we're talking about templates, we're talking about how to create exemplars, that actually some form of prefabrication and modularity is something we should be taking more seriously? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most beautiful things, which is a great idea for future homes, is that um, it has to be open for different platforms like um, modularization, but also um, what if um, the, the, the client or, or the promoter is not a typical developer, you know, but is the 
moms and dads on a suburb, two people that live to, in a, on, a, on a site and they're neighbors and they want to join their site and how do they go about this? So it's very, very flexible to, um, to how the, the building is, is procured because as you were saying, it's very simple. Um, but modularization was a big thing um, in, throughout the competition and for us in particular, we, we, we departed from a module and I'm sure you know, that was part of every other design. But how could this building be built as a traditional building uh, um, in terms of method of construction, but also if it is flat pack, you know, or, or is it modular as a transportable modules one on top of each other. So that was always there because that, that's something we need to think about. More and more modular and transportable is, is here, you know, and it's something we needed to have at our forefront um, when we were designing. In, in, and replicability was always front and center. Throughout. Replicability was always front and center throughout the entire conversation. It was never about, you know, let's build 10 nice buildings. This was all, always about systemic change, well knowing that we can't solve all the problems of affordable housing. Yeah, yeah. We, we are going to have a few moments for questions in a minute. Uh, but I, I, one last question for you, Sarah, which, is, uh, um, which will be a short question. Um, <laughs> um, is there an opportunity for, you, you've done all this work, some of this work actually points to key outcomes that um, hopefully is, is understandable by, by the industry, by the market, by government, etc. Is there an opportunity for a feedback loop from this stuff so that you, you, you're doing those, all this important work and it's lovely to have um, some people here to share it with, but in terms of actually really feeding it back into this pro planning process that there's a lot of people involved in it, it takes a lot of time to move the machinery you know, to get these things happening. Is there a possibility for feedback to properly happen there? I mean, I think so. Um, like what we have tried to do throughout the whole study is consult with government and industry to get their perspectives included in the study. Like I have to admit, I'm not an architect. I've got like a geography degree and a population health PhD. Like I don't know anything degrees. about, you know, so they're good on their own. But but we wanted to have those voices and make sure that what we did and how we pitched the work was actually relevant to policy and industry. So that's why we were measuring the requirements that were included in the policy because that's what people who make the policy are interested in. Are those requirements pitched at the right level and are they having an impact? So through the whole process, we have consulted with, um, with different government agencies and also with industry, and we are packaging up our results, the key things, into a more lay report. So it's not like you have to find it, delve through a really dull paper, you know, to get to the crux of the argument. We're trying to package it up in a kind of a, 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 a summary report that's accessible to everybody. So yeah. that's that's the way, and then and to provide that back to the different policymakers, so that they can try and embed that in their work. Yeah. And our hope is that it will have some evidence. I know you're trying to cut me off, but I'm going to keep going. Um, <laughs> that it will provide the evidence base where, you know, like let's say someone wants to attenuate the policy in Sydney. So we have an evidence base to say, well, no, like maybe we want to defend certain requirements in that policy. In Victoria, I think the evidence is there to say, even with the new BADS policy, perhaps that's not strong enough to bring about good design outcomes on the ground. I don't think, I think these 
exemplars here are, are, are different, but yeah. across yeah. the industry, I think we can see that industry on its own is not going to deliver what we want for a society if we want to age in place, if we yep. want apartments that suit families um, and everyone through the life cycle. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure Nick is going to share it with all his important colleagues in government <laughs> and, uh, and it will be very read by everyone. I'll, I'll email it to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nick, uh, seriously, before we finish off and, and I get a couple of questions in, um, uh, there is, aside from future homes, of course, there's a huge housing initiative underway in the state. It's massive investment in housing. Is there some ways that the lessons from Future Homes, the work that's been done, the priorities that have been discussed, and the opportunities that have been explored, that those things can feed into that, that big build? Or is it too late? Can we, can we find a way of having a feedback loop into that? I think you can. I think the feedback loop around Sarah's research is very important and that feeding into the, t the scale of development that's occurring through the big housing build. Um, there's about 12,500 homes that are being built through the big housing build over the next five years, um, or, or less than that by now. Um, and, uh, yeah, evidence base for good design outcomes um, is important for to inform, like, big-scale design approach. The... Um, Often the difficulty and the reality, and the OVGA would know this, that in these big government programs, they're often quick moving. Uh, there's, there's a risk of design being compromised to meet um, fast-paced delivery, but the big housing build, there, there are people in the Department of Housing, in, in Homes Victoria, who are absolutely committed to good design and working with the OVGA, um, learning from future homes perhaps. The scale is not generally applicable because it's more larger scale development, but absolutely learning from evidence like Sarah's evidence about delivering good apartments at scale. Sure. Well, one of the things we didn't quite cover off was that the, uh, the, the, the very kind of foundation of this brief was, was, was the idea, how do you create change in small infill kind of scenarios of consolidating two or three blocks, not massive developments, because there was that wonderful bit of work done by Stephen Glacken, I think, at... Um, where he looked at all of the uh, houses uh, on, a, on, on, on blocks of land where the, um, the, the value of the, of the property was, um, that the land was 80% of the value. And in that situation, it was ripe for redevelopment. And when you looked at that, there was something like incredible, like 80,000 blocks across the city that were, that were you know, ready for development. And that was the scale of what was being talked about. In some ways, you look at it and say, well, it's only two sites, and it's another two sites, and another two sites. But actually, there's 80,000 of those opportunities around the state, which was the kind of exciting middle ground in terms of scale, having, good, having a not huge scale, not tiny little houses, but actually the right scale. We, we've got a few minutes for some questions, and we have some people in the audience that I recognize as being reasonably smart. So let's have one or two good questions from the audience. Who's got a question? Yeah. Or even an opinion? Tony, you. I've always got an opinion. Um, why aren't any built yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's happening. Look, the... I mean, Nick, you would know this, but um, the, the policy changed in Maribyrna was gazetted in October, um, just before the election. <laughs> and um, so now we're ready for a launch. Um, so the, we're going to basically hit the engagement road more uh, progressively. Um, there are probably a lot of... We could have another whole discussion around who's going to build them, the kind of builders who will be geared up 
for building them as well. Oh, yes. Follow-up question. We should say Tony was on the jury for the competition. <laughs> um, I'm very happy to convey your message, which almost yeah. feels like well, a Dorothy Dixon there, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the state government has committed to one uh, pilot project, but yes, it would be great to see more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's called a tender, and it's been done. Um, over here. Yeah. Hi. Uh, fantastic panel. I really loved it. And uh, my question is, I think about. Um, uh, connections between the apartment and actually the public space and street. And like Aldo Rossi says that um, city is a big house and a house is actually a, a small city. And uh, I really love the idea that you have uh, that, like, community spaces within the apartments that uh, people can interact with each other and so on. And I also love the idea of uh, connecting the apartment building with the street. And I wanted to ask about it like if you connect the apartment building with a street, will it fix the problem as well about the ownership of the street? And will people start to take out the rubbish from the street in front of their apartment buildings and so on? Because if I quote um, uh, Jane Jacobs, and then although it was eight years ago, then she says that uh, in a case where uh, in a city people can choose to uh, share a lot of things or non-things, no things, then the common result is often that they don't share anything. It's a good question, and I think it points to the, one of the unsung heroes in the whole process, which is the landscape and, uh, and the relationship between the street, mediated, the mediation between the street and the building through the landscape. Um, I, I was just going to say, um, uh, it's really, what, what I think that the potential for a building like this or, or fabric of buildings like this is it is transformational for the street because if you think about the suburban house and even the isolated apartment building up in the sky, they're, they're not looking at the street. Both of them are similar in that sense and, and the house is typically looking at its backyard and, and the apartment is looking at kind of an abstract view of the sky and the city. And so I think all the designs do this um, and I think the scale is perfect for this where when you don't go up too high where you can actually eyeball the people on the balcony looking back at you. So I think there would, for argument's sake, each, each project would have at least six apartments looking at the street, maybe, maybe more in some instances. And so I think potentially you get exactly what you're talking about, this transformation of ownership um, about it's you know eyes on the street as Jane Jacobs said, but there's ownership and and so on and and also social engagement where you can see that person and they can see you. Thank you for that question. We have one over there, and we'll take one more after this. So over there. Uh, congratulations. I just wanted to say it's an, an amazing program and I'm really too looking forward to seeing a lot of them hit the ground. Um, my question is re in relationship to, to perhaps redefining value and understanding um, potentially in the context of affordable housing as well that the health benefits, um, for example, are um, incredible, that the contribution of design is incredible. But in the context of the delivery, particularly in large-scale delivery, housing is monetized. So my question to you guys in some senses is how do we capture the value of these projects and these design um, strategies? Big question to be uh, 
Second last question. <laughs> who, who wants to pick up on that one? The gold standard would be a longitudinal study with you know, 100 future homes products um, and a before and after survey of people, uh, you know, and including their own health indicators, heart rates or whatever. That would be the gold standard. I'm not sure we're going to get there. Um, so I think maybe Sarah, um, we need to extrapolate from, from the bits and pieces we know. We've got a publication called The Case for Good Design, which was a desktop study at the time to look at you know, all the you know, studies that we could find that would quantify the benefits, including health benefits, of aspect of design. And now, Sarah, you know, our next iteration will include your study, of course. But maybe you want to contribute as well. Sorry. I think there is space for like an economic evaluation of the health benefits of good design. I don't know if this is quite relevant, but you know, it, it does seem like within the industry there's a lot of pushback about you know, creating larger apartments or embedding these requirements in the apartments because of the cost that the developer will have to wear and that will eat into their profit. Um, so even if you look at, I guess, what was the initial draft version of BADS here in Victoria versus what was actually approved at the end, it did attenuate. Like, there were a lot of requirements that were removed. And I can only guess that, I mean, Stefan can probably comment better than me, but that there was perhaps industry pushback on those because of the costs that would be borne by the industry. So maybe there's a need for looking at alternative ways to minimise the cost to have good design in apartments but not at the expense of the purchase price. So, I, this, I mean, well, I'm it, no expert, but maybe like hmm. unbundling parking from the, from the purchase price of apartments. Uh, very quickly, Phil. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's the point where you need to, um, to see that future home is a, is a good thing, but it needs, it needs something else. It, it needs to be associated with other industries and other initiatives. And, the obvious one was prefabrication. Was we, we couldn't get there. We couldn't get too far in, in where prefabrication is. But that's the kind of things that start to be tangible in value for the consumer. Because if my building is net zero, and um, it, it, it costs me less to run it, and I get government initiatives, then it's a different proposition. So yeah. we, need, we need to start to, um, I mean, move kind of move beyond design and start to engage other industries that can bring uh, that kind of uh, value to a product. For sure. Software design, marketing, I don't know. All those industries that make a lot of money, For sure. they can... Thank you. I mean, I think it's, it's definitely the case that the, 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 the mix of how housing is commercialized and who buys housing, the fact that most of the inner city housing apartments are bought by investors by a very, very large margin will drive certain outcomes that may not be consistent with long-term quality outcomes. So I think the question of who's paying for the new housing is a critical one and where connected thinking within government probably needs to also play a part. And one last question over here. Hello, yes, this sort of uh, draws on actually what Philip was just saying. So obviously, um, the Future Homes Project is fantastic. It's really exciting to see this coming across. I guess one of the things that obviously we're, we're encountering here in Victoria is that there has been a shortage of homes built. And you've seen that you've had to kind of create a bespoke agreement with Maribyrnong Council to actually get this going ahead, right? Um, so what are some of the sort of policies, core... I guess, uh, a core blockers of projects like this up until this point? Are there things people can do? What are the sort of policies and things, blockers that you are coming up across, uh, both as policymakers, 
architects, developers. Can I, can I ask either Nick or Stefan to give us as tight an answer to that as you can? So, um, from a policy point of view, so we're looking at all the levers that government has, not only design, but there's a multitude of levers that contribute to affordability and contribute to getting this product off the ground. One of those levers is the planning system. How do you change the planning system to give certainty and save money? That's one. The other policies are and are there fiscal incentives that you can give to prospective buyers, not for future homes product per se, but for purchasing in established areas. And the other thing, the other, some of the other considerations are, how does government invest in the public realm around these established areas to sort of not just make sure people are buying good quality houses, but they're, they're buying into great quality neighbourhoods with great social connections and a fantastically designed public realm. Peter has, is, is asking to, to add to that and being there. I'll, the, I'll be, very, I'll be very, very, very quick. There was a really good article in the Sydney Morning Herald the other day, so probably in The Age, by a young planner. And basically he's, he wrote, um, the NIMBYs in these middle ring suburbs are saying, no, we don't want terrible three-storey apartment in our area. And he was saying, all of the um, development in these areas is controlled by the homeowners. So I would say, all the people who don't own homes should go to these suburbs and protest and say, I want to live in this nice street as well. <laughs> Because it seems to be homeowners who are controlling the development in that's many areas. It's a good, good answer. Yeah. Um, back to the beginning, perhaps. Uh, check out the Infrastructure Victoria recommendations. One of the recommendations is density targets for suburbs and for parts of suburbs. W actually has that. Interestingly, um, Jill, Government Architect, and I went to Perth last week and talked to our colleagues there. It seemed like from that policy, most over 90% of councils somehow managing an exemption. So that nimbyism even extended to the way councils were behaving. So that's one thing. So density targets that really filter into what happens where, but also we have to make it harder to build really poor quality um, apartment buildings and the ones that externalize the cost. So and that includes Greenfield. Yeah. Don't you hate the last question, which could open up a whole other hour of conversation. Um, with that, I think we'll, 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 uh, we'll bring the conversation to a conclusion. Maybe, uh, Stefan, the event happening soon, is that something we can talk about? The, there's a projecting things on the ground and people coming. Is that a, is that a public thing? Is that a public thing? Yeah, so. It is a it's public, a public thing. thing. Okay, let's talk about that okay, thing. There will be a long... No, look, Nick, you are the conduit <laughs> to the minister. Come on. Yeah, I think you'll, uh, you will, know more about it. There will be a, an exciting launch at a, at a company called... Uh, um, Big plan. Big plan. Open house. Open house. Yeah, during open house. Big during plan. House. Check Big, it out. So there's a location called Big Plans, and future homes plans will be projected on on the floors of the Big Plan facility, and the minister will launch then the project, which is very exciting. So with that, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I'd like to thank all our speakers, the OVG as an organisation, the Department of uh, Transport and Planning, who have helped really make this happen. Um, there's been a lot of people sitting over there who've sweated to this, with this project for so long. So I think a big round of applause for them as well. So thank you for coming. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>